man, there is a real sweet spirit in this place. And uh, I, I, I feel like I'm at home. And, uh, and I, again, just really, really delighted uh, to be here uh, with you guys. And uh, just a second. Uh, and just, just thrilled to see what the Lord says to us. And so would you join me in Jonah chapter 4? Now, as we're turning to Jonah chapter 4, let me just say that there are a lot of things that we could look at here in the book of Jonah. There are many themes. God is doing, saying multiple things in Jonah. And so there, there, there are interesting, can we call them, revelations about who God is and what God is about in the book of Jonah. And so we, we see the, imp- God, the impact that, that, that God experiences uh, when we repent. I mean, that's a major thing there. We, we see um, the frailty and weakness of God's people, especially when they're victims. But I think what we're looking at today in so many ways is the very motivation. What, what is the, the impetus for what God is doing in the book of Jonah? I think we see that very powerfully uh, in, uh, in, today's, in today's text. So uh, Jonah chapter uh, 1, I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, I was expecting to see that. Uh, let me just go to it here real quick. Sorry there, brother. Some of you have got verse uh, 10 and 11 for me. Thank you. God bless you. Saints, let's take a look at this. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity, pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So saints, here's our thoughts today. There are a lot of things that we can look at here today, but this is our thought today. It's simply this. is sharing God's heart for broken cities. Can I say it again? Sharing God's heart. Let me underscore that. Sharing God's heart for broken cities. Let's go before our God. Father God, I just ask right now, Lord Jesus, for your presence. For what I stand before people who who don't know me, I appreciate the introduction that Ramon gave. Father, this message has nothing to do with me. It is about God, it's about you, and it's about your heart. It's about what you are doing. And so, Father God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, by your spirit, would you speak deeply to the hearts of these people. God, I pray that you would arrest their minds and hearts. Lord, I pray that they would feel the weight of what you're saying And not in any way, Lord, think about the sermon when we're done, God, not to reflect on the message or the messenger, but to consider what they ought to do in the be. Would you help them to press into that space where the will is active? And so, God, to that end, Father, I pray, Lord, for the presence of your spirit and the unction of his power. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.
What is a Christian? What is a Christian? So I want to confess to you that this is a question that I have been obsessed with for the past two years. I have explored this question very intentionally. I have considered it. I have prayed through it. I have searched the scripture looking for a really nice way to encapsulate what is a Christian. And I've also looked across various traditions, Christian traditions. I've pushed into the Reformed tradition. I, in some ways, for years have carried that label. I'm not sure if that's my label anymore, but I'm not running from it. But, but I've, I've looked into its tradition in describing what a Christian is. I've I've looked at the Wesleyan tradition. I'm impressed with Wesley. Slide in my notes. But don't sleep on John Wesley. And I, I've also really pressed deeply into the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, trying to, to understand what, what, this, what the answer to this question is. And let me just say that when I ask what is a Christian, I'm not trying to ask a doctrinal question. I'm not asking for a confessional representation of what a Christian is. And so let, let, let me throw out kind of a, a big theological, even a philosophical term. I'm asking an ontological question. I'm asking what is a Christian in its essence? Because I think biblically what we see about a Christian is that a Christian is a new kind of human being. That Christians comprise a new humanity. Pa Pastor Ramon just teached not too long, preached not too long ago about the new people of God, did he not? In talking about the church. That to be a Christian is a new kind of humanity. So Peter describes in his first epistle, if you go into chapter 2 and verse 9, he describes us as a chosen race. And the Greek word there for race is genos. So think about the, the term in biology, genus. There's a group or a category, classification. You can think about this as a species of humanity. Think about the Java man or Homo erectus. That is a different species of humanity. If you think about Neanderthals, uh, we have discovered that there's been some intermixing between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. But let's be very clear about something, is that is a different species in so many ways of humanity. And I think what, what, what Peter is saying to us is that a Christian is a new species of human beings. John says in the third chapter of his first epistle, he explains that the reason Christians cannot habitually and characteristically practice sin is because they have been born of God, which is to say they have been born again from above. That they've been born, as it were, into a new kind of humanity. He says in that same context, in that same passage, he says that, listen to this, God's seed abides in them. He's saying that they have God's DNA. <laughs> He's saying that the life of God is in them. That's what he's saying, is that there's something about this humanity. This is why they cannot, that's the word used, practice. Sin. Paul takes a different angle 
to make the same point in Romans 5, verse 5, where it says, he, meaning God, has poured his love into our hearts by his spirit. He's saying here that we have God's very love in us. So then to be a Christian is to be a new class of humanity who, unlike the rest of humanity, unlike everyone else, have the life and love of God resident in their hearts. They live in love like God. It's what he's saying here. So we can begin to see, can we not, how insulting it is to the Holy Spirit to suggest that a Christian is merely, is merely, is merely a forgiven sinner. That that's all we are is that we simply have been given by God a new status is an insult to the work that the Spirit of God in actually crafting and creating with the might and power of God to usher in a new kind of humanity to suggest that all that is is a new perspective of them is an insult to what he has done. And yes, we want to praise God that we are forgiven saints because we were Sinners. Let me just say very clearly that the Bible does not refer to us, those who are in Christ, as sinners. That, that is not how we're described. That is not our identity. We were sinners. Were, were, were. It's what we see in Scripture, but we're now referred to as God's holy ones. We are God's saints. We are a different kind of humanity. And we are grateful that because we were sinners, that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. However, if you are in Christ, feel me please, you are more than a spiritual ragamuffin dressed in righteous clothes. That that is not who you are. That it is more than that. That God has done something, not just for you, but in you. To you. So God has done. You are regenerated with new life and now partake in the divine nature. God's heart character, saints of God, is communicable and is meant to be imparted to you, Christian. That's what he's done. So the question, saints, what is a Christian? is first and foremost a question about God. This is a question about who God is and what God is about. And the prophet Jeremiah answers this question for us vividly in Jeremiah 9, verse 24. Take a look at this passage with me where Jeremiah says, speaking as the Lord, he says, let him who boast, boast in this. I love that statement. This is not our main text. And I got to watch the clock because I'm not a short preacher. <laughs> and so I, 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 it's, not, it's not in my DNA. And so, so just, just start signaling me, Pastor Ramon, just say, just kind of do, just kinda, you know, do, do something to let me know that I, 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 I need to move down the, the gun lap. He says that, 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 that the Lord is saying, 
that there are those who should have a kind of brash confidence in God. It is, we could use the term in assurance, that they have a deep assurance of him. What is the basis of that assurance? What is the basis of that boast that they understand and know him, the Lord says. And he's not talking about, again, this is not something doctrinal. He's not saying they can give a description that they can simply list the attributes of God, that they've got that with clarity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they have an experiential encounter with God that gives them an intimate, personal knowledge that's birthed and bonding with God, that they understand the kind of God who God is, not just God in his, like, kind of, you know, if you will, kind of his shape, but, but his personality. And so what does God do when you put him someplace? What is he going to do in a circumstance, in a context, in a moment? He's saying that these persons are confident they have assurance because they know what God is about. What is he about here? He says, they know that he, that I, the Lord says, practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Oh, I love this. He practices it. These attributes are not adjectives of God. They are verbs. This is what God does. God does, and what he's saying is that, that God doing these things, these things are impacting, they, they, they affect where God is, and here's what God says here, saints, we're just getting started. He says that these are the things that God does where? He does them in the earth. He's saying that God is not just a God for heaven. That God is not just a God for the eschaton or some place that's got to be explained to you, something's got to be taught to you. He's saying that God is not just a God for some place like that. He says, no, he is lovingly faithful, just, and righteous now. Here, in your mess, saints, in a world of, of sin and vice, in a world with devils running wild, that this is where God is, in cities with human trafficking, where there are legacies of racism, where people ask you in your family if you are illegal, where you are fatigued at hearing at another young black or brown man being killed needlessly, where children are acceptable sacrifices on the altar of gun liberty. In that earth, he says, God is loving, he is faithful, just, and righteous. It's there. Where it's desperately needed. I have a friend whose name is Carlos. And Carlos is, uh, he's not a member of our church, but he's, uh, he's kind of an extension of our ministry. He, in so many ways, has kind of helped us fashion our vision for engaging neighborhoods. So he's kind of a local, well-known city missionary in Tampa Bay, both in Tampa and, and St. Pete and Clearwater as well. And so he was living in this neighborhood. As a, he's, Carlos is, is Puerto Rican, and this neighborhood was largely uh, Latin American immigrants. And Carlos was living there. 
And he would reach out to the young men there, and there was one young man that just hated Carlos. Couldn't stand him. Carlos said, what did I do with this guy? Every time I come around, what's up, fellas? This guy's like being gruff and mean and walking away. And then one night, I got to get in the frame. One night, at about 2 in the morning, there was a knock on Carlos's door. And here's this guy. And he said, hey, listen, Carlos, can I talk to you for a minute? And Carlos says, yeah, sure, what's going on? He said, um, I have my kids who are staying with me tonight. And I just got word that their mother killed herself. I don't know how to tell them. Would you? And Carlos says, yes, I, I will. And so he goes and he lovingly and gently shares with the kids what has happened. And the kids obviously were broken. And it was a wild and crazy, mad moment. And then the young man comes up to Carlos afterwards to thank him. And there's this amazing gratitude in the midst of this madness, that there is both encouragement and madness at the same time, that one can be grateful for an act of kindness amid immense tragedy, that there are glimmers of hope in a broken world where God rarely gives answers or explanations, but instead gives love. And love is exactly what God intends to give through the preaching of Jonah to Nineveh. We see his love here. And what we see here, I'm going to ask if you could move ahead to the, the next, or I, I see it there, thank you. Um, and what we see here in this text and what we want to feel here, what we want to get a sense for this morning is that we want to see and feel the love of God for broken cities. We want to feel and see his love. We want to get that this morning, and then we also want to get Why? God has love in the midst of brokenness. He loves broken cities. We want to understand why God loves broken cities. And then we want, in the few minutes that we have, we want to see and feel the brokenness in our cities today, which entails movement from us. God loves Broken cities. Look at verse 11. And the Lord says, and should not I. He is asking uh, Jonah, is it not right or righteous for me to feel the way I feel for Nineveh? And God is asking this question by contrasting his own feelings for Nineveh with Jonah's feelings for the plant that was given him for shade. He says, Jonah, you're moved only by those things that are in your interests. Only those things that affect you, that's what moves you. He's saying, Jonah, your interests are in those things that are beneficial to you. And when it, you were inconvenienced by losing that plant, that moved your heart that your heart is moved by injustices or inconveniences to you. 
And so and what saints, we want to feel is that it is when our hearts are deeply moved by the broken circumstances of others, that is the measure of the presence of the divine love in our hearts. And indeed, God has that love as God cares. Look at the text again. He said, and should I not pity Nineveh? And so the word, the Greek, the Hebrew word here for pity entails compassion. It is not just like the way God feels like he has tears, that he just sees it. It's like watching a weepy movie. He's not saying that. He's saying that he feels something in a way that is moving him to action. It is a pity that drives. Think about Proverbs 19 where it says, whoever has pity on the poor, I think the ESV says generous, but the proper translation actually would be pity. Whoever has pity on the poor, lends to the Lord. He's not saying that if you feel something for people, when you see that they're in need, that that's lending something to God. He's saying that when you see their impoverishment and their needs and their issues, that that stirs you into action. That's the same thing that James says in James chapter 2, that when you see your brother or sister in need, you have pity on them. You've got the capacity, you have the ability to do something about it. And God is saying, saints, Feel this, that he has the ability to do something about it. Righteous conviction about need always entails restorative action. Righteous conviction does not merely give encouraging words. Righteous conviction, hello, James does not merely pray for someone. If I have the capacity to do something, the text implies here, then pity moves me to act. Why does God have a heart for broken cities? Why is that his heart. Look again at the text. Look at what he says. And should I, should not I pity, care, have compassion, be ready to act for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You know, when people talk about Nineveh, they talk about this capital city of Assyria, they often talk about their sin. They're talking about the horrendous things that Nineveh and Assyria did. How they would take their enemies and behead them and put their heads on poles. How they would cover, I'm sorry for offending anyone, the walls of the city with their skin. And often folks see the evil. And I want to be very clear that if you go back to the beginning of this book, God saw their evil. It says, for their evil has come up before me, the Lord says. But God's testimony, saints, about his heart, that his primary concern for evil is rescue. That it is not God's primary heart. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He is concerned for victims Please feel this. God has a concern also for victimizers. Stay with me, please. Give me a moment. 
This is why there cannot be any talk about racial justice without racial reconciliation. There is no way to achieve racial justice in a righteous way. You see, racial justice is not just compensating for the hurt. Righteous justice is always about establishing peace or shalom. And because it's about shalom, it's not just about getting those who did something wrong. It is about their restoration as well. And one reason why we need to resonate with that is because we are also guilty. And I'm not just talking about technically guilty. I mean, all of us are sinners for real. That we have victimization. We are victimizers. We have said hurtful things. We have meant hurtful things to people. We've done things to others that we ought not to have done. And when God sees that you have done that, he's not waiting to get you back. What God wants to do, he wants to restore sinners. He wants them converted, option one. If then they're not converted, then they're to be condemned. And so what God shows us in verse 11 of chapter 4 is that his great concern for the city of Nineveh is not its awesome architecture or its arts. It's not the greatness of their gardens. Those are not the things that God was moved by. It was the people in their lives. Look at the text. 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from the left. He's saying that they are morally and spiritually naive. Well, I want you to feel that sense. They were able to do tremendous evil, but yet they were naive. Yet there was something that they did not understand. God is explaining their vulnerability. Yes, they are guilty, he says. They are not innocent, but they are needy. A heart like God cannot walk into a prison block and see guilt and condemnation. A heart like God walks into a prison cell block and feels compassion. And that can be done without insensitivity to the original victims because God knows mercy will only be given to the guilty when they are as broken over what they did as he is. So this is how God feels. And it says, cattle. <laughs> is this God's concern for animals? I think God is concerned for animals, but I don't think it's what he's saying there, saints. I think he's looking at cattle in the context of the city. I think he's saying he cares about every dimension of the city. He's concerned about his industry. He's concerned about his economy. He's concerned about all the whole social infrastructure of the city, all the elaborateness of the city, that there's no aspect of the city that God is not also concerned about. Every expression of the Ninevites is a concern for God. It's important, saints, that we understand that the redemptive, restorative heart for people that God has, he has that concern for them in this age, too. That it's not just saving their souls. Let me be very clear about something here. 
Just because this present evil age is under judgment and it's not going to endure forever does not mean that God is just completely washing his hands of it. I'm sorry. This is my, my instinct, too, is to walk around. It's so tempting. It's all that stage there. <laughs> there are people on stage. <laughs> Don't think that this is a throwaway world to God. It's corrupted, but it's not meaningless. And one of the ways, this is just an aside, that you can rest assured that God is concerned about what happens in this age and what you do in this age is that you will, will be judged based on what you do here. And so he has expectations. He has righteous standards for all of us in this age, and God has an agenda for this age that flows out of his heart and his character. So when people talk about things like this age is like the Titanic and all, that doesn't capture God's vision. We don't know when Christ is coming back. There can be generations, even millennia of people coming and living and dying, coming and loving and living and dying. And God is concerned about all of that and not merely that they are able to experience the eschaton, though that is what he wants and he realizes if they invest themselves fully in this age, when this age is utterly destroyed, then they will lose everything. But God is concerned. Let me say this very quickly. We're going to press into closure here. When there is a hungry child in Islamabad, God cares. And it doesn't matter if the parents of that child are devout Muslims. When that kid goes to bed hungry and they're weeping and crying, God cares. God cares about the abuse that women are experiencing at the hands of the Taliban because these women are his image bearers. And he values their souls. God cares about them. And he's moved and he's stirred. Let me say this very clearly, that God's love for his elect and his love for everyone is not something that we can easily differentiate. There's a difference. There's a difference. But it's a difference that only God understands saints. And so you don't get, if you turn off your love for all, you're turning away from God. And the Lord then wants us to see that there's brokenness all around us. I want us to observe one vital element of brokenness in our cities in the area of poverty. What is the human cost of poverty? Let me ask you like this. What does poverty do to our humanity? Is our question. At a recent psychology symposium in Amsterdam, scientists demonstrated that poverty holds a seemingly unbreakable grip on families, neighborhoods, and cities. It stretches from one generation to the next, trapping people in a socioeconomic pit that is nearly impossible to escape, they said. 
part of their fuel. Listen to this, saints. For poverty's unending cycle. Let me slow down. I want you to hear this. Part of the fuel, the reason for poverty's unending cycle is its suppressing effects on individuals' cognitive development, executive function, and attention. Indeed, decades of research have already documented that people who deal with stressors such as low family income, discrimination, limited access to health care, exposure to crime, and similar conditions are highly susceptible to physical and mental disorders, low educational attainment, and IQ scores. Here's a quote. Surveys have shown that a very common view about why poor people are poor is that they don't try hard enough. They're irresponsible. They make poor decisions. They don't stay in school, etc. That's not true. In other words, they're claiming it's not so much a particular behavior that is causing poverty, but poverty is producing a particular behavior. And this is a, this is a quote. There's a moral issue here. One scientist asked, how much more do we have to talk about the fact that poverty is not good for human beings? Now, do we really need a text or proof verse to know that this is something that Christians need to have pity for? Do I need a text to understand that I am called, as it were, by God, that we ought to have a righteous concern that God expects us to rise to some level of action? I think about all the gifts and intellectual gymnastics that people exhibit in their workplaces, in their CPA firms in their real estate offices, as engineers, the kinds of problems they solve as nurses and doctors, the energy that teachers bring to what they do, the kinds of things that people do in their workplaces, do we really think God has graced us with those kinds of abilities for us then to only exercise those gifts for our careers, while the only energy we bring to the poor is to give them food and clothes. Just give you this. That I'm not intended by God, does, does not get God expect us to invest our full humanity into the poverty problem. That we should be, we planners, we organizers, we creatives, how are we not, as it were, some of us at least, coming into conference rooms and looking at data, reading things that help us to discern what's going on, to invest my gifts to creatively and urgently pursue a resolution. What we see in the cross of Jesus Christ is creative, resourceful, urgent action from God. God didn't just throw down some rules to us, he invested himself and thought about it deeply. That's why 
Pastor Ramon and the pastors here can preach the gospel in so many varied ways every week because God invested immensity into the cross. God is expecting us to have an immense investment in the resolution of poverty and marginalization to bring your A-game to this. To not just bring your hands, but to bring your heart to this. To bring your full humanity, everything that God has given us in our modern times. Saints, what is needed here, feel me please, then is a specific kind of heart. We're almost done, I'm sorry. A specific kind of heart. That what God is doing is shaping us, not with a worldview, but with a kind of heart substance and then deploying us with it in an environment. So I used to do, Pastor Vermont knows that, I used to do technology. Um, I worked for a software company for many years, and our product had different modules and features. And the part that I was responsible for is called knowledge management. And it includes analytics, it includes artificial intelligence. And so one aspect of AI is something called machine learning. And so machine learning is when you take a system that is incomplete until it's deployed. And so you don't program at all. I recall it was a TGC article. They were asking questions about how programmers. I said, don't think about it. This It's not the programming that determines it. It's the system. And you build a framework that learns. And so if I take, say, for example, the same machine learning module, say, Alexa, and deploy it in this house and then deploy it in another house, these different Alexas are going to play different kinds of music, are going to do different kinds of things. Over time, they'll look very different. The voice will be similar, but they're going to have different behaviors. Because they're learning, the more data you give it, the more experiences you feed it, it becomes contextualized, particularized for the place. God is doing the same thing with churches. God has provided churches with the kind of heart, with the kind of substance, that heart that loves like God does, that gives mercy the way God gives mercy, that's concerned for victims and for victimizers as God is, and he deploys those churches in situations. There are some that are in Phoenix. There are some that are in Tampa, and they take in data, and as they take in data, they adapt, they're learning, they're morphing, they're evolving, but they're expressing the same kind of heart, but in different kinds of circumstances and situations. This is what God wants to do. God wants to fill the environment with these kinds of adaptive churches who were built with the heart of God. And what we want to do, Roosevelt, is to be that church, but you also want to plant those kinds of churches and revitalize those kinds of churches and you also want to support the planting and revitalizing of those kinds of churches. This is before you. This is before us. God bless you, Roosevelt. Again, it's such a thrill to be here with you. 
Let me just pray God's purposes and blessings on you. Father God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be with these people, that you would, Lord, that you would stir them, move them to a deep resolve and commitment to cities, to Phoenix and beyond, so the world would experience the heart of God through the people of God. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you.